Here we are for the JRNyquist.com podcast for December 17th uh, with Jan Lamprecht. We're continuing our discussion with Jan Lamprecht in Africa. He is in South Africa, I should say, and he's the yes. the guy who does AfricanCrisis.org on the Internet. Yes. And we were talking about about witchcraft before earlier this week. Now we're going to talk about leadership in the world in general. But I, be, be, before we get on to talking about leadership and the lack of true leadership in the world today, I wanted to ask you about Kwanzaa because we're heading up on the Christmas season, and we've got this. You know, we're 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 only almost <laughs> a week away from Christmas now. I, I, when this podcast will be put up on the website, and and so in America we've got this thing where that black people black people from whose ancestors lived in Africa, they have something that's different from Christmas. They have Kwanzaa. Now, is there really <laughs> such a, a holiday as Kwanzaa in Africa? Do black people celebrate Kwanzaa? Jeff, over here in Africa, we've hardly even heard of the word Kwanzaa. And I assure you, there is nothing, there's nothing that they celebrate on any particular day, uh, at least here in southern Africa, that even, that even approaches that. The only reason I even know of Kwanzaa is because I'm sure I've come across it years ago, um, and it's mentioned in the American context, but here in Africa, nothing like it. Of course, a lot of uh, the African Americans, uh, when they talk of Africa, they're talking either of East Africa or West Africa, uh, whereas in Southern Africa, things are somewhat different. Uh, Southern Africa is much more advanced than East or West Africa ever was. But I'm quite sure that there is no Kwanzaa even in East or West Africa. I've not heard of that at all. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, if, is it supposed to be a, a witchcraft or traditional type thing? Because I doubt those people even had calendars. Yeah, I have no idea. Yeah, you're right. They would have to have calendars, wouldn't they, in order to celebrate on a particular <laughs> time? And they did, did. Did the Africans have a concept of the calendar? By the way, where where they, you know, like the primitive Scandinavians, they knew what the solstice was. They celebrated it. The Romans had their Saturnalia. The idea of <clears throat> of what's now Christmas or the Yule Tide was a pagan celebration of the sun being furthest away from the earth. So they understood. The movement of the sun and the fact that the sun was getting further away and the days were getting shorter. Did people in equatorial areas even have this concept? You know, Jeff, I've never come across astronomy or anything related to it as being a strong thing in Africa. About the only place of any real learning in Africa apparently in past times was Timbuktu. And most of their learning actually was derived from the Muslims. But in the rest of Africa, you know, the people were nomads. And I don't think that uh, there's no references I've ever heard, even to things like the moon. You know, it it has no, there's nothing in the sky that I've heard that has any real great significance uh, well, to, the, to the blacks. Um, it's not the same as Europe. Yeah. It's not the same as Europe. But where we're calculating the climate was important for survival. Knowing what time of year it was was essential for surviving. Um, yeah. Uh, okay, so back to our discussion before about leadership, and you made a mm. comment that I have thought about a lot: is that we, you know, we I made the comment that our leaders here in the Washington are like a bunch of hamsters; that they're they're a bunch of small little furry animals that are kind of cowering uh, over their political correctness of various kinds. 
and that we don't have anything, anyone that's bold or whatever. And I, I just happen, I got that term hamster from Claire Berlinski's book. I've been reading it, actually. She's written a, uh-huh. an excellent biography of Margaret Thatcher called, yeah. uh, the title of her book is um, There Is No Alternative, Why Margaret Thatcher Matters. And I've had Claire, I've interviewed Claire about three times on my radio show, and I had her on about this book uh, about a, a month ago or so. And Jim, she, yeah. Can I interrupt yeah, you? Yeah, sure, go ahead. Uh, here here in uh, Southern Africa, I remember people saying that um, at the time of Margaret Thatcher yeah. is that she's she's probably the best man that Britain has. <laughs> Something along those lines. Well, Claire has this thing where she said she said some she quoted some famous politician and or some famous pundit in Britain saying that Margaret Thatcher was a tigress surrounded by hamsters. So that's where I got this <laughs> and, thing. That, and and you know what? That is probably being kind to the hamsters. That's right. And you know, and and she had this really funny picture of this this very preppy looking sort of uh younger uh, politician standing behind her and she was giving a speech and he just he he had this ma- this face he looked like a hamster i mean just saying it and suddenly and then when i started watching the news the national news from washington i was looking at him and thinking they're all hamsters that's what it is they're all hamsters and there's no tigress or tiger there you know and and so i thought well why are these people are just completely they're weak. And I've had this yes. discussion with some friends yes. why these people are weak. And you made an interesting statement yesterday on the podcast. You made a statement about that these people, if you had a really strong personality or strong someone with a strong character, they wouldn't make it through the system. Maybe you can explain what you mean by that. You know, Jeff, I don't know about your work experience, but a lot of my work experiences with corporates um, I mean, I've worked for banks and so forth uh, for a long time, and I'm quite aware of the system, and the system weeds people out, and I, I observe how it works, and um, if you have a bureaucratic type of system, where if it's, it's almost based on manners and politics, and then it becomes a thing of you can't get promoted if you irritate other people. And if you're if you're a really strong personality, a strong personality does not survive through that kind of structure. A person like that will be shoved aside as a troublesome person because you're not a team player and that kind of thing. But if you go into history, and I I have a particular fascination for history, especially. Um, great military leaders. Mm. Uh, my, my personal fascination is simply because it strikes me that there can't be a more difficult and horrific job than to be the commander of an army in a country that's under attack or where everything is going wrong. Yes. You know, all, all living hell has broken loose. Yes. And yet, if you look at history, there are men who thrived in that situation. And so, to me, what kind of personality and character does it take to thrive in a situation that is as close to absolute hell as possible? Mm. And yet you will find that Julius Caesar, Napoleon, Frederick the Great, and lots of other commanders thrived in those situations. And then you go and look at those personalities, and, you know, some of those men 
um, even Winston Churchill, those guys would not have really come through the system normally. If it, if it wasn't for abnormal conditions, those mm. men would never have, um, would never have come through the normal structure. But now in the Western world where there are no wars and there are no threats and everything's peaceful, you have this bureaucratic structure in place that's very powerful. And it's got to weed out people because the other way I look at it, I mean, this may be a cynical way of looking at it, is just looking at the lineup of presidential candidates in in every American or European election, I just, uh, you know, I look at like Hillary Clinton and I say to myself, how on earth can Hillary Clinton be one of the, you know, let's say you've got three presidential candidates or two presidential candidates. How is it that out of 300 million people, you want to tell me she's like uh, one of the two best? It, it just doesn't make sense. I, I just cannot see it. Well, of course, the leader of a country isn't necessarily the best person, and what do we need, mean by best? But I, I, I will say that what I've studied military history, what I've found is that the great commanders were idiosyncratic personalities. They were not normal people. You know what I'm saying? Uh, George okay. Patton, George Patton was a, was a, um, was an extravagant sort of person. He was a character. He believed in reincarnation. Yes. He would weep openly. Uh, he had these very strong opinions. Uh, he irritated his bosses. In fact, almost didn't get to command Third Army because his bosses were so put out with him. Um, you had the same thing with... Uh, in the American Civil War is interesting because the South was closer to feudalism where people were very strong individuals in the South. There's a strong yeah. individualistic streak in the South. Uh, these people okay. had their plantations. They had their. They were like kings of their own castle. These Southern aristocrats, and so the okay. South produced all these generals who were whatever their faults. They were they, they were, were pretty good. good. They were pretty solid. In the North, you have these generals coming <laughs> out of this kind of more bureaucratized society, slightly more bureaucratized, not like we are today at all by any means. Still, there's a lot of frontier. But where do you get your best commanders? You get them from the frontier. You get people, it's it's Grant and it's Sherman are the two best commanders. And even Sherman, though he's a brilliant guy, did not have a strong enough personality on his own to make it. In fact, when he was promoted because of his, his smarts and his bravery by Lincoln to a high position early in the war, he had a nervous breakdown because the media started calling him Mad Bill Sherman because he, he had the habit of talking to himself. Okay. And they called, they said he was crazy, <coughs> so he started to think maybe he was. And he had a nervous breakdown. It's a very interesting, uh, thing. And the man who won the Civil War, Ulysses S. Grant, who is absolutely a genius. And in fact, General John Fuller thinks he's maybe the greatest military genius in all of history. But because he was such a humble, sort of self-effacing person in some respects, he didn't get any credit. And he wasn't very articulate at explaining what it was he was doing. He just was able to do it. And, uh, and in, in Fuller's biography of General Grant is, is astonishing. Because he basically proves, just by looking at all the engagements Grant fought, that Grant yeah. outfought everybody. Uh, he wasn't just a butcher. He didn't just slaughter his men to win. He actually outfought people and won tremendous bloodless victories that, uh, that, uh, in, in people's hostility to him, be calling him a drunk and whatnot. But the interesting thing is Grant was washed up in the army for being a drunk. 
Uh, he was idiosyncratic <clears throat> in, in some of his beliefs and ideas. He was a definite personality, strong personality in his own. But the guy could, didn't fit into regular society. He got a, a charity job from relatives before the Civil War broke out as a hardware clerk in Galena, Illinois. Yes. And, and the know, war breaks out, and suddenly he's the only one who can win a battle for the North. The only one who can really win. Well, go and look at uh, Napoleon's marshals. And the, his, his marshals are a really strange bunch of people. I think the one was a smuggler. The other one was a baker. And that was their profession before the war. And yet these guys turned out to be among the finest generals of their time. Now, what was the quality <coughs> that he saw in them or that they had that allowed them to rise fr from being a smuggler or a baker to being a great general or a hardware clerk in Illinois to being a great soldier? What, what was it that made these men what they were? Well, you know, if you look at Napoleon, I think Napoleon had a particular talent for spotting talent among other people. And whatever his method of judgment was, he had, he had certain ideas of his own. He liked boldness and action and bravery. Um, Napoleon was a great believer in, in, in attacking. Uh, you know, one of his, um, one of his, uh, I don't know what you call it. Uh, he, he said on one occasion something like w the difference between a, a great captain and and a normal captain is that if a great captain finds himself in a situation where he's outnumbered, he won't retreat, he will attack. And uh, so there were certain sorts of principles that Napoleon distilled that he thought made for great commanders. And, and he looked for a type of a personality. I also remember reading that Napoleon became convinced that um, – the character of a man, uh, the character of a man who is who's the commander is probably the single most important factor of all. And he believed that that was one of the lessons of history was that you have to be a pretty um, you have to be a pretty decent person um, in order to uh, lead men and command authority over men. And, you know, Jeff, that is another thing that I don't see in real life is um, you have all these bureaucrats. And, you know, I, I work in an affirmative action environment. Mm -hmm. So you so I probably see something that you don't see much of. And that is what happens when when I work and report to somebody, but I know about 10 times as much as the guy that I'm reporting to. And I will tell you that, you know, um, it's very hard to work in that environment because you have to tell your boss answers that he really should know. You have to tell him things and you have to save him um, from things. And I often think to myself um, that, that, like in my environment, it's back to front because it should be the other way around. It should be the one who has the most experience and knowledge mm -hmm. and can do the job better who should be giving the orders. And I think when it comes to warfare, I sometimes think about warfare and battle, and I think to myself that, you know, maybe it's not all as bad or as evil as people make out, because in warfare, unlike in politics, you know, Napoleon once said, for example, that in 
politics is the one um, area where you don't need any talent. He said that you know to be <laughs> successful. Well, you know, uh, Napoleon was the person who originated the the word ideology, and he he originated it not as a compliment, but he originated it as a way of scorning all the people in France that emerged out of the revolution. Oh, and really? All these ideas, yeah. He called Tell them me. ideologists. Yeah, and he and it was a oh. term of scorn. Okay. Well, Napoleon, I think his exact words were something along the line that in order to be successful in politics, you don't need any talent. But anyway, um, the, but in warfare, it's different. You know, you, you can maybe, uh, have you ever seen these humorous books? They used to have these humorous books which were called Bluff Your Way Through Sex or, or how, how to bluff your way through something. It was, there was a whole series of them, Bluff Your Way. And, and, you know, you might be able to bluff your way through politics, yes. but you can't bluff your way through war. No. And, um, and I think that is where the difference comes between generals and politicians, is that those men were men who were capable of actually doing something and achieving something under very, very difficult conditions, which would break most men. And... Um, it takes a special kind of a character, Jeff, and I think probably one of the strongest characteristics is strength of your mind mm. because, you know, strength of will and strength of mind and also being of sound judgment. You know, when, when I look at some of these generals and, and, you, and you see how they commanded and the things that they said before battles, for example, mm. you know, when Napoleon, when Napoleon was leading the Russian – the Russians and the Austrians into a trap at Austerlitz. Mm -hmm. He was he was riding over the battlefield and and going to the various positions and having a look. And he told his officers, he said to them, "Have a look, look at this at this terrain and study it, because in a few days' time we're going to have a big battle here." And the thing that strikes me the most about Napoleon is is the depth of perception of this man. He's able to take in lots and lots of facts. He's able to process them and he's able to reach decisions and he's, he's correct more often than not. And if he makes a mistake, this is the, this is the beauty about generalship is if you make a mistake, you might be killed yes. and your army might be destroyed and your country will lose everything. So I think that there's a certain kind of intelligence. People forget that war in, involves war like, like science or any other um, activity is not just an area for crazy lunatics to run around um, engaging in senseless violence. It's actually people who have to think very carefully about how you use violence and how you use things other than violence in order to get your way against somebody who is willing to use violence to stop you. It's actually a very strange kind of a mindset, and it's a very difficult place to operate. So you need very special kind of men to survive that. Mm -hmm. And and I think that a lot of these generals are actually exceptionally clever people hmm. with exceptionally capable minds and rational minds, because otherwise... How could they keep winning battles? You might be able to win one battle by luck.
but I assure you, you would not be able to continue on like that for very well, long. You know, it's very interesting. <laughs> I had this uh, this sort of discussion, and I I believe that there is such a thing as thinking. And I've had this discussion with academics about what is thinking, and uh, yeah. they want to teach young people how to think. And uh, I tell them, well, you can't do that because thinking is a predisposition. If they're not already doing it before you get to them, you're not going to teach them how. <laughs> and okay. uh, they didn't like that. They didn't like me telling that. I told that to professors when I was in graduate school. They didn't like it. And I said, besides, this bureaucratic environment here in this educational thing, you're giving me a grade. If I, if I write a paper that it goes against your theories, I know I'm going to get a lower grade. So what do I do? I find out what you believe in, and I write a paper that panders to what you want because you're the professor. You're the big head honcho I'm getting a grade from. Oh, they really didn't like that. But it was absolutely oh. true. That's the way people behaved in graduate school. They figured out what the professor wanted, and they spit back what the professor was, was giving. So they weren't thinking. They were regurgitating in a very sophisticated way. They were regurgitating. Yes. And the thing about thinking is thinking is intuitive. It is not. You know You know that movie Rain Man where Dustin Hoffman plays the, the, the idiot savant who can calculate, uh, do calculus in his head? I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it. Well, now, uh, you know, I... an idiot savant is, a, you know, you got these people who can, who can do complicated math in their heads, but they, yes. don't, they, they don't know what anything means. They're complete idiots. Okay. I mean, they're, they're, they're okay. goofs. And the thing yes. is, is that intuitive, an intuitive thinker, thinking person, they know what's important. They know what comes first. They know what things mean. So they can weigh them, and they have, as you say, judgment about them, yes. so that they really can think. That's different than just a raw mathematical calculation. Calculation is something you need to be able to do, but calculation isn't as part as the intuition of knowing what things really are and their relation to each other. Understanding these yes. relationships is part of the judgment in it. And I've yes. always been astonished, having been in graduate school myself, having worked with people and talked to people that have gotten involved in think tanks and the CIA and the State Department and government, is that I hardly ever met one on that career path who I thought could really think. Okay. And that was what okay. convinced me, by the way, that when I was looking at a lot of the problems that I write about and, and, and think about and write columns about today, is I looked around and I go, how come these people aren't writing about this? This is a really hot topic. This is the thing that they should be thinking about. And I talk to them and go, oh, no, that's no, we don't want to touch that. No, that's not good. And I realized okay. right then I wasn't going to be successful. They were <laughs> because I yes. was saying things that were irritating people. And it's 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 they it wasn't quite socially acceptable. And yet what I realized was that that's fine as long as your society's on the wrong right path. But if your society is yes. headed for destruction, you better pay attention to these things because the things that I really were interested in were, were like red flags that are saying yes. the United States is not pursuing the right strategy versus the Soviet Union. There's a certain amount of self-deception uh, involved in American strategy during the Cold War. And then the self-deception of believing the Soviet Union collapsed was a spontaneous people power kind of thing. It wasn't. It was organized by the KGB and the security services. It's a fact. You know, I've yes. ta I talked to, I had a guy on from Eastern Europe last week on a podcast and he'd interviewed people over there involved directly in the, the creation of this revolution, uh, who got their orders from Moscow. Right. You know, he's making well, a documentary about <coughs> it. You see, Jeff, I think that especially in certain 
I keep telling people that, you know, great men only arise in times of difficulty. I, you know, if Napoleon had lived at any other time, he would probably have been a very average guy. In fact, I actually have a, have a book about Napoleon the novelist. Napoleon actually tried his hand at writing and he wasn't, he, he tried to write some, sh- some stories and, um, he would probably not even have made it as a writer, but he ended up in a period of time and with some luck in a position where a talent that that would otherwise never have um, had a chance to show itself came out. Well, let's, and, let's um, see what that talent is. And uh, what that talent is is a talent to think for yourself, which requires strength <coughs> of mind, requires logic, and requires a kind of ruthless, uh, a ruthlessness with yourself. Because one of the things you encounter when you're thinking is yourself. And I think that's what gets yes. in the way of a lot of people thinking because they run into their own ego. You know, Jeff, you, you also get another thing. And, and this is the thing that, that I really admire so much about these great commanders is it's not just about thinking. It's about thinking about something that's actually horrific. Yes. I mean, you have to think about the fact that, you know what, I'm going to do something tomorrow, and if I do this thing wrong, I could be dead. Yeah, that is horrific. And if, and, and if, or if I do this wrong, not only could I be dead, but a 100,000 others could also be dead. Mm. And, you know, to be able to sit back and calmly consider the facts and how you're going to do things in this kind of situation you know, it requires a certain type of person that you don't normally come across. Well, Most well think, people, think about the confidence that a person has to have to not, not lose their nerve doing something like that. Isn't that something? You know, when you really realize this problem, and I think, Jeff, that is why you will see, um, as we were discussing about George Washington, you know, you get people who, who when times are tough, You'll see all sorts of people fall by the wayside. And in my own life, as I've watched the countries I've lived in fall apart, you know, Jeff, I've seen, I've had rich people in my family or stinking rich friends who've gone on to lose everything they have. And I've noticed that, you know, as times get tougher, there are lots of people who appear to be strong but they actually are completely unprepared for what's about to happen. And one of the most common things that happens to people is they cannot psychologically deal with um, the hostile situation that they face, especially if they're like business people because business people need to be friends with everybody. And what happens when you live in a society where the government suddenly isn't friendly to business? And now that that government is trying to actually destroy businesses, you know, so you see lots of people fall by the wayside almost immediately just from the psychological pressure. And then somewhere in the mass of people, you will find another kind of a man who maybe you wouldn't notice normally. And you'll see that this guy has got a lot more strength than other people, but that strength is not obvious at first. You know, there's an interesting story about uh, the Anglo-Boer War here in South Africa a hundred years ago. 
at the time of the Anglo-Boer War, when the Boers and the British were, go- were about to go to war with each other, there was a lot of debate on the Afrikaans' side. And there was a farmer um, who later on became the greatest Boer general of the war. His name was Delaray. And Delaray still turned around and said to the president in, in one of the early meetings, he said to him, you, you fight with your mouth. But I will tell you that when you have run away, I will still be fighting. And that was Delaray. And Delaray was an untutored guy who went into battle and he actually became, he defeated British generals and he fought some of the most br- brilliant campaigns that have ever been fought in this country. Hmm. But like I say, he was a guy who came from nowhere. And if you look at a lot of great leaders, there were people who, who, um, who offhand um, wouldn't have really gone anywhere. They are strange people. But they have a certain character. The first requirement, I think, of a leader is intelligence. I don't think you can make it as a leader in the world, um, except now in this modern world, in this modern world where maybe you can become the president of the United States and not have much of an IQ. Um, I, I really do not see a modern president as being of the same kind of ability as, say, Julius Caesar. Oh, Julius Caesar was an incredible genius, though. I mean, I mean to to try to compare any. I mean, I I mean Lincoln was a genius. I think President Lincoln was. Uh, I try to think of another president. There was a genius of character about Washington. Certainly, Madison and Jefferson were very smart guys, perhaps geniuses. Uh, but we haven't had very many geniuses as president in this country. Uh, and, and maybe some of the others that were more obscure, they never really got to shine. We had some strong leaders like President Polk, for example. Uh, uh, president Grant was certainly a genius as a general, there's no doubt in my mind. Uh, but, um, but there, there aren't, Julius Caesar was a very special brand of genius. Yes, I mean, the, his achievements are, are incredible. And um, when I look at these people, you know, it starts off with you've got to be intelligent because you've got to be able to think for yourself. Because when right. you're at the top, um, you know, if you spend all your time relying on your advisors, right. you know, all these guys who really achieved great things didn't rely too much on advisors. I mean, Napoleon was a very centralized guy. Mm-hmm. Or everything was channeled through to Napoleon. You know, there was that time when, when they wanted to uh, take Napoleon and another general and put them in charge of the army of Italy. And Napoleon wrote a letter to the French government saying, um, one, one bad general is better than two good ones. He said he would rather let one, one general command an army than two. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and um, there is... In their success, you'll also see um, a sort of a centralization of power, but a centralization of intellect, because these people could take all these facts, look at them dispassionately, and then also have that strength of character and confidence to deal with this, and then to start issuing orders and, you know, make life and death decisions without a problem. But... There is also the other thing of integrity, and I, and I think Napoleon definitely believed in integrity. And if you look at the great leaders, 
Um, the soldiers who fought for Julius Caesar loved Julius Caesar, and I'm sure that there are hundreds of thousands of Frenchmen uh, who went to their graves not because so much of France, but because of because they believed in Napoleon as a person. And a leader has to command respect among his people. And in the in the military world. That is only achieved through success and through survival in a very difficult situation. But when you live in this normal, peaceful world in which we live, then you don't have any of these really heavy things going on. And so you don't need such great survivalists uh, and such great intellect to command society. You know, suppose you have a president who achieves 2% economic growth. But you could have had another guy who could have achieved 6% economic growth. Both of those, you know, um, it's, it's, not, it's not the same situation as a war where the difference could be victory or the difference could be complete defeat. And so I think that there's, there's a type of a character that comes out of wars that is completely different to the kinds of characters that live in these bureaucratic systems where everybody has to have manners and where you can't irritate too many people, otherwise you will not go through the system. And then, if, you know, and there's this filtering process. As you're going up through the system, if your boss has, has a problem with something or he has a particular idiosyncrasy and he doesn't like something you do, you know, he could end your career. Uh, and it w- won't be your fault. It would be his shortcoming. You know, I had a I had a, a a boss that I worked for, who was a most irritating man, uh, and he used to always argue with me not about what I did, but how I went about doing it. The fact that I would irritate people, and um, he absolutely he would never say to me, "What you have done is wrong." Everything that I did, he agreed. I had engaged in the correct course of action. I had solved the problem uh, well. But he would argue with me over the fact that I didn't consider people's feelings too much when I was doing certain things. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've, and then later on, I've, um, I actually ended up working for a guy who had a completely opposite view. Um, he actually said to me, Jan, uh, I... I know that uh, you're the kind of guy that will set the cat among the pigeons, but that is exactly what I want. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, he needed but, um, he needed that. Well, you know, there's something about people who think, who are in themselves thinking and strong. They don't necessarily go with the herd. That is, they don't necessarily consult the feelings of others. And because they are strong themselves, they assume other people are strong and will not be hurt by the things they do. You yes. know what I'm saying? And, you know, and, and, and Jeff, so that makes them a little bit sometimes abrasive, although in the case of Julius Caesar, I must say, Julius Caesar understood how people felt, and he really manipulated, and he he flattered and, 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 and used that. So he had a sort of genius for people as well as the genius that he had otherwise. Oh, yes. No, his, his strategy, uh, his conquest of Gaul was probably one of the most amazing uh, military campaigns of all time. Yeah, because and, uh, it was all—it was basically an unconquerable province, outnumbered, outgunned, uh, totally on his own. And how he managed to survive against those odds—I mean, the things in there, 
you know, I regard it as one of the most amazing stories of all time. Well, what's even and more amazing uh, is is that he politically conquered Gaul. Yes. Okay. After he ki- after so many people were killed, how could he do that? And Gaul remained part of the Roman Empire essentially for hundreds of years after that. Okay. Well, you know, Jeff, I think it's not when you are thinking about deep and heavy things. There are lots of things that you can say where you will tread on people's toes. Mm-hmm. And I find it, I find it inconceivable that, you know, there's almost like a, a feminine mentality in a certain way. And I, I say it's feminine because it's all about, you know, let's, let's be careful about everybody's feelings and, you know, let's rather tell a white lie so that people feel better about themselves. But in reality, I think that there are lots of things where you need a sort of a, a male type of leadership, which is somewhat different. Like, like Margaret you, Thatcher. <laughs> yes. How's that? The where best you man kick some people around. Yeah. You know, sometimes you need to be harsh on people. You know, I was really surprised to read in that biography that she screamed and yelled and uh, threw fits in, in front of her, her people, and she treated them like bad schoolboys. But that is, that is character. Believe it or not, Robert Mugabe strikes terror into his own people. Apparently, people who've worked with him have seen his tantrums and things, and, they, and, and he terrifies them. Hmm. But, you know, all characters are like that. Hitler is like that. Napoleon threw tantrums. Yeah, I know Napoleon used to bark at his uh, marshals in front of the troops, which is considered bad form to dress down a, an, another officer in front of his men. And they say and that was his only fault. His only his only real fault as a general was doing that. Otherwise, he okay. handled people. But he did this thing, and I don't know if you would confirm this, but he did this thing to make himself popular with his men. He would go out at night. The guy was an insomniac. He only needed two or three hours of sleep a night. He could get by. And he would go out and he'd find some soldier asleep at his post, which, by the way, was a capital offense. If you fell asleep on guard duty, you could be shot in the morning. So Uh he would find some poor soldier who was asleep, and he would pick up the soldier's rifle and stand duty for him. And the soldier would wake up to find the the emperor or the the top general, whatever his position at the time, was guarding for him. And he said, don't worry, I'm not going to get you in trouble. I'm doing this for you. And then the I've story would heard... spread. Oh, yeah, the story would spread. He did that kind of stuff all the time. And then he would try to memorize the names of soldiers who'd done heroic actions in the battle. And he'd, re- he'd try to look at their, figure out what they had done in different battles and where he was, where they were when he was at different places. So when he'd give them medals, he'd say, oh, I think I saw you at Marengo, or I think I saw you at Austerlitz, and weren't you the one that did this or that? And they would be, oh, my God, he remembered me. Yes, I'm, I'm well aware of those things. You know, Napoleon had a personal touch that was really amazing. His troops actually loved him. Mm-hmm. Like, I remember reading once, uh, during his negotiations, um, prior to the, I think it was prior to the Battle of Austerlitz, he met with the Austrians and the Russians to talk peace. Uh, and, and the Austrians and the Russians were rather arrogant and they were basically saying to him, you know, he must sort of surrender or give up or whatever. And Napoleon was so angry, he was so infuriated, and he was walking down the road, and he was really irritated. And and a a sergeant, um, uh, you know, heard him 
heard him complaining and so forth, and the sergeant said to him, no, don't worry, general, you know, everything will, don't worry, emperor, everything will be fine, and so forth. And and his soldiers, you know, he had a human side to him that his soldiers could could understand because he was with them. And um, you'll and like my favorite story about him in that regard was, um, I think it was before also before the Battle of Austerlitz. At a point, he went with some troops and they went to do some reconnaissance, and some enemy cavalry spooked them or whatever, and. Napoleon ended up falling off his horse, and he was walking walking around alone uh, in in this uh, rural area, and he was trying to walk back to his camp. And as he was walking back, uh, and it was getting dark, some of his soldiers saw him, and they saw him alone, and they started accompanying him. And eventually, as it grew dark, there were hundreds of these soldiers walking with torches escorting him all the way back to to his headquarters even though he hadn't asked them and he was extremely touched by this and the enemy even saw saw this and thought it was some sort of secret maneuver but actually it was just <laughs> the soldiers walking with him yeah. and if you look at if you look at Alexander the Great or Gustavus Adolphus they they did things to sh- to um make their troops uh, you know, feel motivated because they went out and suffered alongside them. You know, and when you look at modern leaders, they don't do that. No. Um, no, that's, you know, that's, I don't, yeah, that's a very good point because I, I do have experience with this. I, I worked for a company uh, as a contractor, and the, the top executives in the company basically were like um, getting yachts and houses for themselves and they were living really good and they were firing people in the company and making uh, you know making one person do two jobs yes. while they were enriching themselves and then they were saying yes. how good they were and they were making horrible mistakes they were losing money despite they were doing this they were losing all this money they bought a bunch of clinics that didn't work they they bought another business that collapsed you know and then they couldn't sell it you know they made these horrific decisions these guys were idiots and i remember i was in the restroom in the executive restroom and I was, uh, I, they didn't know I was in there. I was in one of the back stalls and I heard, uh, this guy saying, well, I have a schooner, three yachts and a sailboat. And the guy goes, the other, and this was the CFO and the CEO of the company. And the other guy goes, well, I got a regular flotilla and he rattled off all his boats and he said, well, do you ever use them? No. Well, it's a wasting asset. You know, you're the CFO. It's a wasting asset if you don't use it. And they laughed. And I could go and then walk uh, through the whole, organization and everyone was demoralized everybody was underpaid everybody was grumbling and talking about leaving the organization and they were disgusted at all the mistakes and errors that were being made it was amazing but you see jeff that is the wrong way to lead people if you look at, at alexander the great and those guys i mean gustavus adolphus ended up dying on the battlefield and they kept and they and his his other commanders kept saying to him, why, why are you putting yourself in so much danger? And he kept saying that he was doing like Alexander the Great because he wanted to show his soldiers that they mustn't be afraid. So he can't tell them not to be afraid. He has to show them that, you, that, that he has to show that he is fearless, that he will go and do something. And I think it's this thing of leadership by example. That is really another big thing about those leaders. Not only were they capable men, but they commanded respect because 
The men that were with them saw them being brave. The men who were with them saw them, you know, facing death themselves. I mean, Napoleon had many horses shot from under him. Um, Alexander the Great, I'm not sure if he was wounded a couple of times. But, you know, these men did things and they did, these leaders uh, did things and were with their men. And that was how they got to command respect. They didn't tell their men to, to respect them. They, through their actions, they gained that respect. And you know, when, when 9-11 occurred, I mean, you have the, the President of the United States, and sure, he's, he's a great guy, and he, he commands all these forces, and he's a valuable person. But I thought to myself, you know, the first action was to spirit the President of the United States away. Mm-hmm. If, and, and I actually thought it was wrong, because yes, yes, he is an important guy. The enemy will want to kill him. But you know what? Leaders can always be replaced. And yes. there's, another, there's another value in having him stand up in front of everyone. And that's where um, Ian Smith, who was the, the prime minister of Rhodesia before, before Mugabe, um, I should tell you how that man commanded people's respect. Because Ian Smith, in his younger days, was actually, he volunteered for World War II, and he was a fighter pilot in Europe. And after World War II, when he went back to Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe, he became a farmer. And then later on, he entered politics. But it, but when he was in politics, you know, people admired Ian Smith in a way that I've never seen people admire a, mo- a modern politician. And people in that country always used to say, they used to call him Old Smithy. And they used to say, you know, if there's one honest politician left in the world, it's Smith. And he, and he could command that sort of respect. When he came to uh, South Africa to watch a rugby match, the South Af- and he was sitting with the South African Prime Minister of the time, the people, the South Africans applauded him more than they applauded their own leader. And during all the harsh times of the war, Ian Smith would actually, Ian Smith, uh, would set an example. He, he rode to, uh, Parliament and to his offices on a bicycle to show people that, you know, you have to save fuel. And he went and did that. And after Mugabe came to power, Mugabe travels around the country like the Soviets do. He's got a whole convoy of soldiers that follow him and they dash through every traffic light without stopping and, and, and that sort of thing. Ian Smith never had a bodyguard even after Mugabe came to power. So imagine this scenario. Here is the hated white man who ruled this this largely black country. But after losing power, you would think the blacks would want to kill him in the street. But actually, Ian Smith lived alone. He didn't even lock his house. And he would walk through the streets of Harare by himself. And the black people were pleasant to him and everybody was nice to him and he lived he had less fear than Robert Mugabe who was the new pre- president remarkable absolutely remarkable and, that's and oh, that is, man you see and that's different to the way the the politicians in the western world are they've forgotten how to lead and you know some days I'm cynical Jeff when I look at the way these governments work, then I say to myself, I'm sure that, you know, 
I'm sure that you could be the President of the United States as long as you could um, answer a multiple choice question because that's really what it boils down to. Those, those people have lots of advisors who think for them and who say to them, uh, President, you have option A and option B and option C. Choose one. <clears throat> I'm sure that it's not that – I'm sure that that's – the way things really do work, you know? Well, it, it is distressing because I don't think that we have, I see we have a new president, I know he's, he seems intelligent, but what I hear coming from him doesn't seem like the right solutions. He see, he sounds to me like someone who's going to do, I hate to say it, an awful job. And this business about public works and about spending our way out of the, this depression, that's developing now, it, it is completely wrong. We know from history this does not work. This is the formula to prolong the economic crisis, and yet this is what comes out of the man's mouth. You know, sometimes these people come up with these glib things. I suppose this is, you know, Jeff, I suppose there comes a time also in history where you have uh, a sort of common, a time when everybody agrees that on Everybody agrees on a certain thing as knowledge. And then somebody will come along who will completely disprove that. I mean, Napoleon was an example. Everybody said you fight war in a certain way. Then along came Napoleon, and he broke all the rules. But he was winning all the battles. And then everybody saw that, you know, what we thought was knowledge is actually not knowledge. There is a there is another level. Mm-hmm. And I think... And I think that happens in economics, and I think it happens in a lot of places. And of course, there's a lot of a lot of old junk socialist ideas are also regarded as knowledge. You know, mm-hmm. um, I think yeah. there's a lot of stuff that masquerades as knowledge that isn't really knowledge. Oh, there's to no be doubt. There is no doubt of that. And and the fact is, these bailouts. And I I keep thinking about it. I I can't stop thinking about it because it's so dreadful. They've basically adopted kind of a Bolshevik mentality. Whatever happened to the knowledge that Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher brought to people that the market knows better? That not only is the market more efficient, the market is the moral way. Because the market is people doing it voluntarily on their own, through their own knowledge, the knowledge that each individual brings to the market, instead of government saying, hey, we know better, we're going to take everybody's resources, pool them, and we're going to apply the solution, whether anybody likes it or not, which is, is the, the foundation of a totalitarian state. Let me, t- let, me t- let me add to that, Jeff. I keep reminding people about Karl Marx and Adam Smith. You know, Professor Adam Smith published uh, that that uh, analysis of his called The Wealth of Nations in 1776. Mm. And he went, and he's the father of the free market, because he went and he sat down as an economist or as the first economist. Actually, he, he wasn't an economist. He was the chair of moral philosophy at Edinburgh University. Okay, but what I mean is... He but he was. A, but it's e- important. E- he created economics. But it's important. Even though he, he was. A, it's important to note that he was a moral philosopher. That's very important, <coughs> because I think okay. that what what he discovered was that there was a morality in the market. Okay, and through his careful analysis, he showed that f- the free market is the best way. Then you get this guy called Karl Marx, who came and invented a lot of junk. 
he he was so discredited even in his own day that economists would not even reply to him. He wrote a load of rubbish, and now there are people who believe that some of what he did was actually intellectual. But the real intellectual was actually Adam Smith. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and, I mean, it was the adoption of his ideas that made America and Europe great. Yeah. If it wasn't. Yeah. And, and now those very same ideas, now suddenly people don't want to use the same, the very same formula that made your country great is now no longer applicable. How is this? Well, you know, Adam Smith <coughs> pointed out that the capitalist system wasn't utopian and that actors, businessmen could be highly immoral. And, and he, but he said that the way the market made it is the, the market, there was the invisible hand that, that yes. basically things worked out in the market. And of course, we know that we shouldn't have a, a total lack of regulation because some things, people will do bad things and there needs to be that. But what's, what's very intriguing is, is that we know certain things about motivation, about people keeping what they've worked for and what they've earned. The redistribution yes. of wealth being not only destructive to motivation, but destructive and demoralizing. We've seen that we saw that in the Soviet Union. I was talking to a, a, a former Soviet citizen the other day. He was telling me about how people who worked hard in the Soviet Union were thought to be laughing stocks. Because why are you working so hard? Jeff, you get the same thing in our environment, even with our affirmative action, because you know, any type of socialism is extremely demotivating. And, you know, socialism only really benefits. It, socialism in any form encourages abuse. And it always rewards the lazy. It rewards those who don't want to do things. Whereas capitalism is a, is a different thing. Capitalism rewards those with initiative. It rewards work. You know, the, the two things, the, this is the other side of it is the human side. You know, the, the, the one rewarding the good and the other one rewarding the evil. And socialism drains people of motivation because why should you work hard when other people, you know, when being lazy is just as good? Yeah. And being lazy does not cost. See, what's interesting is being lazy doesn't cost a person anything. Whereas working hard does cost you, it costs you that effort, it costs you that pain, that pain in your back or your neck or your foot or your head. And, and, but here's the other thing is what people have to realize is that when you work hard and you earn something and you make something, you feel pride in that. You have done that. That is an accomplishment. You feel a genuine sense of, of, okay, I, I, maybe I'm worth something after all. Maybe I can do something in the world and you build yourself up. And you increase yes. your morale and your ability to do things increases and you do more and more and, and, and on it goes. But the people that sit and do nothing, they don't yes. gain intellectual ability. They don't gain savvy or knowledge or skills. They just, they stagnate. And the society that goes that way stagnates. Yes. And, and, and you know, people also forget another thing. Another reason why socialism is completely unworkable, Jeff, is because in the real world, there is scarcity. Yes. Oh, Socialism, yes. socialism is based on the concept that there is a lot to distribute. The yeah. reality is there isn't much to distribute. <laughs> no. You know, people in America, this country's been so rich for so long, that's the big mistake here that Americans make. I can tell you for a fact that a lot of people, 
are willing to accept Obama, they're willing to accept socialism, they're willing to accept some of these new things because they think, well, America's so rich, it's got so much, if if we taxed it more, we did this more, it wouldn't really hurt anything, it would all still be here tomorrow. No, it's you know, Jeff, it's a very, very inefficient system. If I compare Rhodesia with Zimbabwe, uh, when Mugabe took over, he ended up increasing the size of government by a factor of 10 or 20 times. Um, you know, the whole thing just burgeoned. It, it creates this huge uh, bureaucracy that is now sucking the lifeblood out of the country, over and above all the other negatives it's doing. You know, in, in our part of the world where things are so much smaller, it's so much easier to see the difference between socialism and capitalism because we don't have much to play with. And it's very quick to destroy the economy. And as you've seen yourself in Zimbabwe, you know, all you need is 10 years of really hardcore socialism and the country is flat on its back. You know, it's wiped out. They've undone 60 years of progress in no time at all. And people forget that, that you know, this whole concept of just spending and giving you know and that, oh and that's the other thing i see oprah winfrey's giving away everything you know giving is just another form of socialism but but it, it brings us back to the whole concept of you know what's the use of giving a man a fish rather teach him how to fish that is the real answer to the to the problem here yeah well, I, I, uh, talking about Obama, now you, I don't know how much you follow our uh, politics here in the United States, but um, you, you know we're bailing out the automobile companies. Now it's pretty much yeah. been decided. We bailed out the we biggest insurance company in the world. We've been bailing out Wall Street. We've been uh, bailing out banks by buying them, basically nationalizing, semi-nationalizing. You know, there's strings attached to money that's given or loans yeah. in which the government assumes kind of semi-control over these industries in exchange for this money. And and now get this, our national debt was 11 trillion, or actually 10.6 trillion before this crisis began. Now it's 11.3 trillion plus. We've got another 3 trillion. We've spent of 8.5 trillion. We're committing to fight this financial crash. Doesn't it seem to you the financial crash is not as big a catastrophe as the reaction to it and that the socialization yes. that's taking place? Well, Jeff, let me, let me mention some things. I mean, a friend of mine uh, and I, we, we discuss economics and stuff a lot, and we've been arguing about this, and both of us completely agree. Um, you know, this bailout is such a load of rubbish. I mean, this is this is like bringing in socialism to save capitalism. It's insane. And, oh, and, it's so and, backwards. And, and if you look, but now look at actually what's coming out of it. There, there are different aspects to this. Number one is all socialism is open to abuse and encourages abuse. I will guarantee you that if you go to a bunch of businessmen Who've, who've already done some bad things by engage, by, um, engaging in bad business practices. And you now say to them, well, I'm going to make available to you a hundred billion dollars. Well, you know, I'm sure that some of them are going to be thinking of ways in which they can use that hundred billion dollars or acquire some of it. Uh, and it will have nothing to do with the bailout or with, or with helping anything. They, people will be looking for ways to pocket some of this money. 
themselves or for their own companies. Mm. You know, and, and when you walk around saying to people, I'll give you this and I'll give you that and so forth, people start thinking of selfish things to do. And, you know, just making all this money available for these things, you know, is crazy. But what's even worse is if you now look at what they're doing with it. I mean, first of all, what are you going to buy? You're going to buy bad debt, debt that is actually going to – those companies would have folded because of that bad debt. So now you're taking public money and you're buying something that's very bad, that you can't sell, that has no value – and you're saving that business, but now you've bought this, 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 this bad debt, and what are you going to do with it? Who are you going to sell it to? And the person you that, know? that made all these mistakes is not, not removed from the market. They're still there. You've, you've allowed he, a business yes. to commit all these egregious errors, and the business is still there. To commit yes, more Jeff, egregious errors. Jeff, Jeff. You are rewarding the person who has created the problem. Yes. You've taken him away from being punished for what he did. He would have gone bankrupt. Now you've stopped him going bankrupt. So what do you think? Do you think he's going to carry on um, making sound? You know, if he's already done terrible things in the past, well, you know, what's the proof that he's not going to do terrible and dumb, stupid things in the future? You know, that is why where capitalism is so great. You know, I sometimes have to tell people why capitalism is the greatest system that ever existed. Because, first of all, it's self-financing. You know, in, in this country of ours where people are so heavily into socialism, they forget that, you know, whenever you mention making a profit, then people say, oh, but that's such an evil thing. I tell people, you know what? You should be encouraging companies to make a profit and you should be praising them for, for making an even bigger profit because if they make a profit, they are able to finance themselves, finance their own growth and move forward all by themselves without anybody helping them. So that is already the one positive thing about it. And the other side of the coin is that it's capitalism is a type of economic Darwinism. It's survival of the fittest where if somebody makes a mistake, he goes bankrupt, and you put him out of business, and he doesn't enter the system. Whereas the guy who is successful, he will make money. He may even make a lot of money in a terrible situation. But let him make that money because he will use it in even greater ways in the future. Well, let's talk about these bureaucratic leaders in the, the, the business. I see business going awry because we've we've basically left the era of the entrepreneur and we've gone to the era of bureaucratized businesses. These are people that have merely gotten business degrees that are running companies, being CEOs, being CFOs, uh, and these guys are, are nothing but... They're people who have never swept a floor. They've never done the jobs. They didn't work their way up. They didn't invent the company. The entrepreneur who did it, who started the company, he swept the floor. He did everything when he started. It was him and two other guys or him by himself. These people yes. never had to create anything. They go to school. They get some kind of grade from some professor somewhere. They go, oh, we can take it over. We can run it. They don't know what they're doing. And yes. and so we've placed these people everywhere throughout our economy, and we pay them you know, two hundred thousand, three hundred thousand, a million dollars a year, and they're they're good for nothing. 
and they run one company after another into the ground. I'm not kidding. This is what I see in the economy today. This is the way things seem to work. And they're, 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 the only way that they succeed in, and they profit, it's, it's the accident of the, of the in, initiative and the power of the past pushing them forward. But it's not them. They're dead weight. You know, Jeff, when I was a kid, I remember people uh, being held up as examples. Look at this guy. He started this business by himself. Now he has a hundred employees or a thousand or ten thousand. You know, mm-hmm. that was the kind of guy that we, that when I was a kid, they would hold up and say, this is a guy who's successful. I never see that being, being said anymore, almost anywhere. You know, you don't have heroes anymore, people who you can look up to and say, hell, that guy did something great. It's almost like a sin to achieve anything like that these days. And I think that there's a lot that's lost because, you know, people now grow up and they don't think in terms of I can be great or I can do something great with my life. But you is know, it, is nobody, it, is it nobody aspires. Is it something that... We have in this bureaucratically organized society where we're all in this little bureaucratic group that if anybody does excel, if anybody does do something great, other people are offended and maybe envious of that and they have to bring him down. They can't let him do it. Actually, Jeff, I think you've got a lot. There's a lot of truth in that. Here in Africa, I can tell you that definitely the success brings envy and jealousy. No question about it. And that is a sign of civilizations declining. That's barbarism. That is bringing down society because it is a, it is a false set of values, a set of values that leads us to breaking down instead of building up. You know, this is the whole thing is, you know, like I've said, capitalism is self-financing, encourages things and so forth. The way the Western world used to be is that you used to look for talent. And you try and promote and accentuate that talent. You take a man and you encourage him to do something great. And if he, and if he achieves something, then you give him even more power so that he can do even greater things. And nobody thinks like that and talks like that anymore. That, you know, we should be finding the brightest and encouraging the brightest to contribute to our society. Instead, like in our country, we have OBE. Uh, where we actually take the brightest and we slow them down to the level of the dumbest oh, man. so that they, you know? Oh, yeah. And it's no wonder that we're not going anywhere. It's no wonder that nobody's inventing anything new. You know, if you look back on history, Jeff, there were probably more inventions and heavier and, and deeper scientific thinking going on in the 1800s than there was in the 1900s. If you look at the kind of concepts that people were thinking about, guys like, I mean, guys like Edison and and who was that uh, Serbian guy? Nikola Tesla. Uh, Tesla. I mean, Tesla was thinking thoughts that even today are Mm -hmm. mind-boggling. But those guys were thinking it over a 100 years ago. Hmm. Well, yeah. And And they were doing it. We have uh, gone more than an hour on this episode here of the podcast, so, uh, wow. Just wind it up. (laughs) (laughs) The listeners are probably tired of our ranting about this. But one last point I thought I would say, 
do you think that these modern big corporations, bureaucratically organized, are kind of like sort of socialistic, just in the way they're organized? <coughs> well, Jeff, in in and and the values they teach. You know, I actually went on a course where they were trying to teach us. Uh, they 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 kind of bring a lot of socialist junk into the business world uh, where I am that is act absolutely not relevant at all to what we're doing. They're almost indoctrinating us into learning values that actually have got nothing to do with capitalism and nothing to do with success, and they don't encourage any kind of success at all. They are stupid uh, leftist values. Hmm. Yes, and with that stupid leftist values, we will leave our listeners. We call it a day. Jr. Nyquist.com podcast with Jan Lemprecht of AfricanCrisis.com, and I'm Jeff Nyquist. So thanks for joining us for the podcast.